I want to recognize one of our sponsors. Have you ever felt like a lone wolf in life, unable to engage in chats around the barbecue since you're doing things that aren't the norm? Enter GoBundance, a place where driven entrepreneurs, CEOs, or investors who are beginning to experience an interesting phenomenon with more success in life, the feeling of a gap forming between ourselves and many of the people around us. One day, we wake up and find ourselves surrounded by people who may no longer see the world the same way we do. As the trend continues, we become more isolated and even find ourselves holding back from talking about things we are most excited about with friends, family, or coworkers. Cobundance was created for those who choose to live bigger and more fulfilled lives of impact. This tribe is for men and women who want to experience world-class adventure, bucketless trips, high-minded conversations, authentic relationships, and an environment to learn and grow with like-minded people. GoBundance is a tribe where you are able to share your successes, struggles, ambitions, and failures without being judged. It's a framework to strengthen your journey in becoming a better man, husband, father, friend, and entrepreneur. It is the place men come together to live epic lives and to grab life big. If you want to learn more, go to GoBundance.com and hit the apply button to join the tribe and tell them the Cashflow Ninja sent you. Welcome to the Cashflow Ninja, the podcast sharing how to create and grow income streams and manage, multiply, and protect your wealth in the new economy. Are you tired of trading your time for money? Do you desire freedom today instead of retirement in 10, 20, or 30 years? I'm MC Lobsher, and this is the Cashflow Ninja. This is Cashflow Ninja. I'm MC Lobsher. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode. In the Cashflow Ninja, I've got a fantastic show for you. Before we jump into that, everything Cashflow Ninja is at CashflowNinja.com. There's over 850 episodes, uh, tools, resources, programs, and don't forget to grab a copy of my book, The 21 Best Cashflow Niches, Creating Wealth in the Best Alternative Cashflow Investments, available at CashflowNinja.com or on Amazon.com. And when you grab a copy... Uh, please screenshot a proof of your purchase, send it to my team at info at cashflowninja.com and you will get access to a digital version of the book if you prefer to read it on Kindle, uh, an audio version of the book if you prefer to listen to it, and a curated library of Cashflow Ninjas discussing the niches so you don't have to listen to 850 episodes and more bonus goodies available at cashflowninja.com and on Amazon. Uh, I've got a fantastic guest for you today, Chris McIntosh, a fellow South African that lives in New Zealand, has done fantastic work at Capitalist Exploits. Uh, I've enjoyed uh, his uh, newsletter where he shares great insights um, and ideas in the world of investing, in, especially in the times of today. Um, and his tagline on his website fits in right with what we're sharing here. Use this crisis to build a generational wealth. So we're going to jump into that a little bit. Uh, Chris, welcome to the show. It's good to be here, mate. It's good to be here. We haven't spoken before, so I'm, I'm excited to, um, to have a chat. Yeah, absolutely. I have uh, really been a big fan of your work. And uh, 
all of the things that uh, that you share on your your mailing list at capitalexploits.at. Uh, it's fantastic stuff. Um, use this crisis to build generational wealth. I mean, just that tagline right there feeds into uh, a lot of the things that we discuss here. But before we jump into our conversation, for folks that are not familiar uh, with you um, and what you do, can you please share a little bit about your background and journey with them? Yeah, so um, we run um, a um, investment advisory, if you want, service publishing newsletter, which came about as a consequence of writing um, notes to clients whose money we manage under Glenorchy Capital, which is a um, licensed entity for managing capital. We run two portfolios with that. <clears throat> one is um, a dividend income portfolio and the other one is what we call the asymmetric portfolio. So we're essentially deep value long-term investors. Um, and our, our strategy is really to look at, well, we have two, two approaches that we kind of work with. One is sort of the bottom up, right? So you look around the world and you say, what's, what's real deep value? What does it make a lot of sense? What's extraordinarily cheap um, for whatever reason? And sometimes there are reasons why they're cheap and they may stay cheap and it's fine. If you can understand why that is, you stay away from them. But in, in other instances, that's where you find asymmetric value. Um, and I think it was Soros, bless his heart, I don't like his politics, but he was... Um, a smart uh, market <clears throat> observer, and he said, "What find the premise that is false and bet against it. And to a certain extent, that's what you're doing as a deep value investor. So we take that approach and we look mostly for sectors. Not We're not very sort of, um, I'm not going to go and look specifically for equities first um, because I'm not interested in buying you know, the best equity in some sector. And if that entire sector is under pressure for some reason, I'm kind of facing a whole lot of headwinds that I don't want to be. I want to be a lazy investor, right? So I want to be getting into the, the flow of a river and I want to jump into my raft and I want it to be flowing the direction that I want to be going in. And I don't want to have to have the best raft. I just want to have that massive tailwind behind me. So we look for these sectors and then we overlay that with a sort of macro geopolitical analysis to try understand what's going on in the world and, and really often looking for major big trends underway. Um, and boy, do we have some now. So that's kind of our investment thesis, if you will. Yep. Um, my background's varied. I um, used to work as an investment banker. I left that in, shoot, when was that? 2003, I guess it was. Um, basically became an entrepreneur. Um, really just looked for, for, for these these sorts of big trends. Um, so I got involved in real estate, um, built a real estate investment trading firm, which I sold in 2006 when things got stupid and then a year later everything turned to custard. Um, I didn't know it would turn to custard. I just knew that the probabilities were not in my favor. And then after that, I went into um, risk and so we had interest rates collapsing with central banks trying to uh, manipulate them rates lower and lower on the back of what was um, a huge bond bull market, which began post Bretton Woods. And I looked at that and I realized that capital, uh, certain pools of capital were going to have to look for higher risk. 
in a world where that risk was already mispriced. And the reason behind that is basically if you take like a, a pension fund and they got to earn roughly a 7% net. And they, they have to also, by mandate, have, let's just say for shits and giggles, 70% of their portfolio in AAA-rated debt. Yep. Fine. How are they going to get 7%? Pretty much impossible. So the only way you're going to get that net return is to actually, on the portion of your portfolio that you don't have to invest into um, those instruments, you will take greater risk because you need to get a much bigger return to accommodate and um, compensate for the lack of returns that you're getting in the bond market. And so I realized that we'd get a flood of capital into things like venture capital. And so I built a venture capital firm, which um, we you know, invested in a crazy tech shit, basically. And I um, got to 2015, 16, and I thought, this stuff is nuts. You know, it would have been very good, but I was like, this is crazy. <laughs> and um, so we moved out of that, sold that. And that's when I sort of started up uh, what we're doing now. First, it was just for family and friends, managing with a partner of mine, managing money, our own money in these. And then, like I said, start writing to clients and then clients like shared that with friends and family. And eventually we're like, hey, this is, there's a lot, look, there's a lot of people who don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars that they can place with us. And so, um, but they still liked the, the analysis and the ideas and so on and so forth. And so, uh, we turned that into a subscriber investment newsletter service, if you will. So that's kind of where we're at today. Um, and yeah. Awesome. Um, so the theme here is like you take a look at things from a macro perspective and then kind of find the trends, the ingredients, uh, whether appetizing or not so appetizing. And then you figure out the capital flows from it, right? And where it's going or where it's going to move move from. Um, and as you mentioned, some of these, t- these things that stand out to you that, that helps you in decision-making. Now, both of us are from South Africa. So uh, w- when, did you, when did you leave there and, and w- how did you end up? You're now in New Zealand. How did you end up in uh, New Zealand? I want to recognize one of our sponsors. Recently, I had a very engaging and exciting podcast conversation that is one of the most downloaded episodes of this year with my friend, Louis O'Connor. The subject was owning rare earth metals as tangible assets. It's the same paradigm as owning gold or silver, but instead you own industrial grade, high quality, rare earth metals that you are purchasing from a premier industry supplier. And the exit for the investor is also guaranteed. One of the most interesting things about this asset clause is that rare earths outperform the stock market and precious metals for the past five years. Unfortunately, there is only a limited amount available to private investors. If you would like to find out more about this exciting and limited opportunity, then please go directly to the website www.strategicmetalsinvest.com or email them at info at strategicmetalsinvest.com. Okay, so I left, I left two weeks after I finished high school. I'd been, um, I, I, when I was well, what, about 14, I think it was, I had an uncle travel through South Africa and he was backpacking through. And I looked at that and I said, man, I know exactly what I want to do when, I'm, when I grow up. I want to be a backpacker. And so 
I um I started working jobs from 14 and saved and saved and um anyway so I got to end of high school and I had enough money and I buggered off left the country to go and travel the world well actually to travel to the UK where I could actually then work because our currency rate was pretty pretty garbage at the time yeah and um so fortunately I had a um had a passport to be able to to do that um anyway so did that and then long story short I studied law um correspondence while then working days in um in London I got in uh, the, this was the basically going into the um the dot-com era yeah and so they were hiring any idiot and I was one of them I got into the investment banks pretty easily just as a consequence of that kind of big trend in in motion and I worked hard and um basically I got a, a really fantastic boss who um who liked me and and found that I'd just worked harder than anyone else and so I kind of worked um, my way up a bit in the banks there and then um <clears throat> met a a Kiwi girl um and and that's why we're happened to be here but worked all over the place worked in New York London uh, Frankfurt for a bit and then um headed back over here in order to raise kids and do that sort of stuff um and then in between I've lived in you know we've lived in other places we've always kept a place here um and traveled a whole lot um you know in, in with the work that I was doing um running a venture capital firm we we invested in stuff all over the world um so I was, I was on planes a lot um now it's a bit more more quiet apart from the fact that these morons lock down the world um but um, it tends to be you know a bit more sedentary if you will um yeah. sitting and um and uh, managing business from home basically yeah yeah they definitely have and that tie- that ties into uh some of the things that you're seeing right now so um what what is your worldview telling you uh, from where you're sitting and looking at all of this big picture and then maybe some of the, the, the trends inside of it from what got us here, uh, where we are now, and, 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 and what, what, what's about to unfold? Oh, boy, where to start? Like I suspect a bunch of your listeners are probably, I'm hoping that they are, shall we say, sufficiently informed as to what's transpiring um, now what the COVID crisis is about. Basically, it's a financial reset that has to take place as a consequence of the mismanagement of, um, of the economy and, um, and currency. Um, this is what the bond bull market has been about. The debts that have been accumulated are unpayable. Mathematically, that's true. And, and not just to the extent which, is, which has previously been the case. Um, in, if you took countries that have defaulted on debts, whether it be Argentina or um, uh, Cyprus, I mean, like take any Mexico in the peso crisis, any of these countries, you could have looked at the, me- the mechanics and the, the numbers behind it and gone, okay, well, yeah, that was kind of reasonable. We can see how that fell over. The numbers that we're talking about today make that really, really just look pitiful. And so there's an inability to solve this problem that has been. Um, constructed, um, and so what we're in now is a um, is a debt reset. They're attempting um, 
And when I say they, it's it's central banks and um, the powers that be are attempting to detonate the system in order to retain control of it um, and have an ability to build a narrative which is plausible for the vast majority of people where they won't revolt. Because if you go and you look at most debt repudiations, um, they'll often accompany um, change of government, revolution, if you will, sometimes. Um, And so that's the last thing that one would want if you're in control. So you need to have a plausible deniability where you can say, well, it wasn't our fault. It was the COVID. It was the Ukraine war. It was pick your poison. Yep. So that's the sort of framework as to where we're at now. With respect to how um, things are playing out, um, our focus largely has been on commodities. If you if you take that bottom up approach, basically we're in a massive deficit in terms of capex spending in many many sectors um, within the commodity spectrum. That's as a consequence of the bull and bear market, typical cyclical market phase, which exists in most. It always exists. Um, these markets run through these cyclical periods. So our, our bull market ended in 2012, 2013, the last commodity bull market. <clears throat> and we've been in a bear market ever since. What has made this one exceptionally attractive <clears throat> going into it is that the ordinary mechanisms that have preceded um, us in every other bull and bear market cycle. Many of those have been taken away, and I'll explain what I mean by that. When you have deficits in particular commodities come through, ordinarily um, the market participants, those that are involved in it, will see the, you know, those mechanisms and say, ah, we know what's going to happen. Firstly, prices start moving up, and so they will start bringing in capex right, in order to take advantage of these higher prices. Um, the reason that we go through big spikes and run-ups and, and collapses in commodity markets is as a consequence of capex spending, which is high. Um, it's a capital-intensive business. In other words, you know, when you build a mine, it's not the same as building some software in your back room with you know Joey and his um, six-pack of Red Bull. It's very, <laughs> very capital-intensive. The other thing is that the time frame in actually, in actually to bring about um, supply to the market is is extended. It's years. It's not months. Mm. You can build some software and you can have it up and, and tested and developed and everything else within months, maybe a year. But you can't do that with a, a you know copper mine. It's going to take you normally sort of seven to ten years to actually get the actual supply to the ground. Once you've found it, fourth degree, you've built a roading into it, blah blah blah. So that's why you get these big cyclical markets. What's happened this time around is that the capex spending has not come in. It hasn't come in as a consequence of extraordinary political pressure by woke um, politicians and intellectual class, if you will, who are now running companies, CEOs of companies, who have largely been brought up in a world where they have a disconnect between the physical world and their world, and they don't typically understand that. such that they've now decided we're going to be ESG compliant. Uh, we're going to make the world friendly. We're going to run it on unicorn farts and, and feel-good narratives. And um, 
And so there's an extraordinary disconnect between the real world and that which they currently experience. And as a consequence, the world that they currently experience is going to deteriorate to the point where they wake up. Now, that's not, that's largely a Western phenomenon, um, which brings me to another massive trend that is in play, which is a shift of capital from the West to the East. Mm. Um, you will not find, I mean, you can look at universities, for example, and look at the, co- the concentration of, um, of graduates going through various universities and what you'll find for example, and there's many of these examples, in Asian universities, Chinese in particular, are a very high concentration of engineers and mathematics. In the West, there's a very high concentration of um, social sciences. I want to take a moment to recognize one of our sponsors. One of the best cash flow niches might surprise you. It's the cash flow machine called Resort Hospitality. Our friends and partners, Melanie and Josh McCallan from Accountable Equity, are so prolific at creating cash flow for their investors that I had to include them twice in my book, The 21 Best Cash Flow Niches. Something that really impresses me about this dynamic group is that more than just creating cash flow with these historic trophy resort properties, they are also creating a powerful investor community with an accountable equity. Investors not only get to enjoy cash flow from beautiful resorts, but can enjoy the resorts and attend Learn and Grow Investor Summits where like-minded accredited investors gather to learn from keynote speakers as well as get updates on their projects and meet the growing team that makes all of this possible. You can learn more how the asset clause of resort hospitality is a great way to diversify your multifamily investments by downloading the ebook, The 10 Steps to Build Wealth with Resort Hospitality Assets at accountableequity.com. And so what we're seeing is, um, you know, if you take the social sciences, it's, it's, it's this idea of how to, how to structure the world. But all of that is underpinned by um, a a world that exists as a consequence of the engineering, the bridge that you drive over doesn't just exist. It has to be manufactured. It has to be designed. And if your mathematics says that two plus two is equal to four, then you're okay. If your mathematics is two plus two is equal to four and that's racist, then your bridge is going to fall down. I don't want to live in a building that's constructed by somebody whose, whose idea of a mathematical equation um, is, is predicated on something being racist or sexist or any other ism. Um, and so, you know, there's, <clears throat> there's this extraordinary disconnect and what we're seeing as a consequence, and you come, if, if you take carbon emissions, which is, which is one of the uh, bullshit narratives that's been utilized as a weapon to push through these um, various agendas, um, we see that with you and I were talking about this before we jumped on and started recording. Um, while the West is saying, Yeah, we're going to be carbon neutral by 2030, 2035, whatever it is, China said, Yeah, we're good with that. How about um, you guys do that and we'll do it by 2060? And in the interim, they're going out and they're building 
hundreds of coal-fired power stations and hundreds of nuclear power stations. And they're now building a refinery in Saudi Arabia and they're building a, the world's largest refinery in China while everybody else is shutting down their refineries and shutting down their productions. And so um, that's just one example. So you're seeing this extraordinary shift um, and, and that is unfortunately going to um, lay the groundwork for, I hate to use the word new world order because it's sort of an overutilized um, terminology, but you know, that's largely what it is. Yeah. Uh, a lot of great points there. One of the things that, that you uh, started with too is this, uh, big, from a big picture perspective too. So um, the narrative, the virus, the influenza, now that's kind of fade away. Now you have a war that comes in, which now will probably lead, either they will double down on this one, or if that one fades, there's another cyber you know, attack or on critical infrastructure, financial system, bank, you know, banking system. We've already had exercises, cyber polygon, and there's another one um, that they attacked the mm -hmm. critical infrastructure of the financial system and, and, and banks. And mm -hmm. carbon essentially gives governments and corporations and, you know, let's just say NGOs, it gives them full, full control and power. Um, unlimited, in, in a sense, if you go the war on the virus, the war against, you know, the war in Ukraine. Um, no, there's nothing better than an ability to fight an unseen enemy, right? Because if yep. it, go, go back to when we were little kids, right? Yep. So you and I grew up in South Africa, and you remember the Tokolosh. Oh, so yeah. For listeners who don't, who don't know what that means, with the, um, the tribes in South Africa, I'm not, I'm not sure if this is a Zulu or a Kosa thing, but anyway, they have this belief in something called the Tokolosh, which is basically this little devil. And he's a short little sucker. So um, he can get to you and now he can do all sorts of unimaginable, horrible things to you, but he is short. And so one of the things that, um, that people there do is they put the bed on bricks, right? And put it up high so that he can't get to you at night. Now, and grown adults do this, right? Now, what, what's most frightening behind all of that is nobody's seen the talk of this, right? He's unseen. And so you can build any sort of narrative around that and terrify people around it. Yep. Um, and if you look at what we've had, we've had this unseen virus. You can't see it, but it's there. It's coming for you. And if you look at the narratives that have been put out, they're there are, they are so childlike. You know, over in Australia, where my trading team sits, they had, I think it was the Premier or something of Queensland who came out and he said, this virus is so deadly, it can penetrate through windows, right? And so you need to stay at home. And, you, and, and, and I listened to that. I'm like, well, thank God we can use paper masks then because <laughs> that's going to stop it. So yeah. you have these these ridiculous bullshit narratives. But the point I'm making is that a lot of people get sufficiently terrified because they think or they believe what they're told, which is that this thing's going to wipe you out and you are dead if you get it. And there's many people who thought that and some who still do. When if you just look at the data, and we started doing this way back in you know, February of 2020, and we knew immediately that we were looking at something that was not what we were being told it was. 
just looking at, and this is true of any, you know, I've, I've run many firms, trust but verify, right? So you come to me with some deal and you're like, Chris, got this wonderful company, we're going to do this and that. Yeah, come finance it. Trust but verify. Check your data. You know, who are you going to sell to? You've told me these numbers. Do they match up? Does that make sense? It either does or it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And so um, we've got this situation where we're being sold narratives around especially things that you cannot quite easily verify. Carbon emissions, do that? Like, what is carbon emission? Do they affect us, do, don't they? And to what extent? And then they push that with a whole lot of scientific reports that are put out who are paid for by the same entities that are pushing this narrative. It's not actually any different to when we had the 2008 crisis, whereby you had, remember, the rating agencies who rated all this sausage meat mm-hmm. AAA when it obviously wasn't AAA. And, and why would they do that? Well, they were paid by the banks. That's who paid them. So today we have the CDC who are paid by Big Pharma. That's who funds them just to tell us that Big Pharma is correct. Right. And so it's the same thing over and again. It's a massive fraud. Um, and that's not conspiracy. That is fact. You can look at the numbers and you can you can analyze it. And, and there is it is unquestionable that there's a massive fraud taking place. But the point I'm making is that you have these this ability to have an unseen, um, almost intangible threat. And you can do anything with people if you if you get them sufficiently fearful. Yeah. Well, to just to add to your statement about the fraud, all you need to do is look at the stock charts at the moment of Moderna and of Pfizer, and you know that everybody knows well, that's the, <laughs> that it's see, a fraud. Here's the, here's the thing with um, with my industry: we we are the best of us are agnostic. Okay, we we only make money if we're right, and so we care about making money. In order to make money, we need to know what the numbers are. We need to know what the facts are, irrespective of whatever the mainstream media might be telling us. Okay, and so we will look through the numbers, and and Wall Street is now woke, was woken up. That's why Pfizer's share price is down. Um, that's why Moderna's down over seventy percent because they've woken up because they know that this is a fraud. And so they are moving ahead while the, while the main, you know, the average Joe on the street still thinks this thing's all hunky-dory um, because he's, he's looking at the media who are bought and paid for in many, many instances. So um, that's, you know, that's the beauty of capitalism. If you look at most frauds, you look at Enron, you look at MF Global, all of these things, they were never found out by the regulators. They were found out by individuals who had a vested interest in profiting by being right. That's who found them. That's always going to be the case. I want to take a moment to recognize one of our sponsors. My friend Dave Zook says, you can be conventional or you can be wealthy. Pick one. At The Real Asset Investor, Dave and his team bring their investors high-yield investment opportunities across several asset classes for cash flow, tax impact, and equity growth. He and his team are one of the top five ATM operators in the country, and they have an investment opportunity available to accredited investors right now in the ATM space. To learn more about their ATM funds that produce tax-free cash flow, visit 
therealassetinvestor.com. And then the real game is the capital, the movement of capital. And, and you touched about that, the, the reset of this financial system. So while a lot of folks are, you know, besides the, the virus caught in the war, you look at the money side, SWIFT, you know, Russian, Russia getting removed from SWIFT, uh, changing to SIPs with, with China, MasterCard and, and, and Visa canceling Russia, and now uh, forcing them to switch to what's it, union pay. Uh, so it's interesting to see all of the, the, the movement. And I mean, there's no, again, there's no, there's no way you would logically make these decisions because you're just giving up control and power of, of the, the current system and, and, and relinquishing it and, and moving it over. Some of your insights and thoughts there, what you're seeing and what's the implications of this for the West? Because you're seeing a massive transfer now that the baton is basically being handed behind the scenes almost uh, to, yeah, uh, to so, China so and to Russia. There's a couple of things with SWIFT that's that's worth worth mentioning. Um, there's a, there's been a narrative that the media have pushed, and it's it's weird to me because they're saying, well, Russia out of the SWIFT systems mean means that they can't operate, and that's nonsense. The, the SWIFT is a messaging system. Mm. Okay, there are many alternatives that one can utilize in terms of messaging in order to still transact. You can use Signal, you could use Telegram, you could use WhatsApp, like sakes. Right now, is there more friction? Absolutely, one hundred percent. There's more friction than the Swift system, which is more uh, integrated and um, and and um, more secure. Right, so the security of it of it is certainly an issue. But the point is that those banks can still transact if you're not on the Swift system. They just have more friction in that transaction process. That's one thing. The second, of course, is that there are alternatives to it. China built SIPs and Russia built SFPS, and both of which have been utilized and have been utilized. 2014, I think they built SFPS. Anyway, so what, what I think when I look at that, I say, why would they do that? Um, taking them out of the SWIFT system, it's, it looks like they did the same, same thing to Iran. Iran didn't have the technology to actually have an alternative system built. And an alternative system is also only um, viable or, or, or works if your counterparties use it too, right? So like if you're in the system, you're in SWIFT and I'm out of it, and that's an easy system to work on and everybody else is utilizing it. I'm the only joker who doesn't have it. I'm kind of ostracized because I go, hey, I need you to use my system so that we can transact. Now, again, more friction. You go, oh, well, uh, yes, it's, it's just it's harder, right? So that's what kind of the situation that Iran was in. What we've now done is we've pushed more participants into that alternative system. That, that weakens your own system. It's a, it's, a, it's a silly move, but the, I think there could be an alternative plan behind this. By doing that, <clears throat> they could easily, you talked about some cyber attack, they could easily attack the banks as a false flag event, and then implement something that they say is better. Because you go back, forget about that, because that's all conspiracy theory, right? Yep. Go back and say, what have we seen for the last five plus years? We've seen them increasingly pushing the narrative of a central bank digital currency. Right? We know that they're going to bring it through. They, in order to bring that through, it, it is required that they have some 
um, exogenous type of event that pushes people towards it because most people don't want it. They're distrustful of it. They certainly have been given enormous reasons to distrust their government over the last few years, and there's an increasing level of distrust. So now to implement some whole new currency system is going to face opposition. So you need to have something that you know, sort of gels up support for that. What better than all of the banks being taken out by some cyber attack and them saying, you know what, Russia's attacking SWIFT system, but this is the perfect time for us to, to bring something that is much more robust. Let's have a central bank digital currency. Here it is. We will keep you safe. So I think there's a couple of things in play. But <clears throat> this brings up something else, which is um, uh, you know, a, a big part of the work that we do, which is most asymmetry exists at the point of um, choke points, if you will. Right. So you think about like, why did the, <clears throat> um, why did the price of nickel go through the roof on the LME uh, a couple of weeks ago? Well, it was it was futures contract. You had a Chinese firm that was short billions of dollars, and and it, you're trying to, you're trying to squeeze this physical amount that doesn't exist. The price shot up, but you have so, but you had this. It's like a choke point. The same is true if you had um, um, a big pool of water, right? And the only and and like in in say your swimming pool, and now you're going to drain it. And you've got like one drain at the bottom, and it's just one tiny drain. The, the force going into that is is extraordinary. If you put in multiple holes and multiple drains, it can drain out more more easily. Yeah. Now, from an investment standpoint, what you want is the one drain because it creates extraordinary symmetry and pressure. So, if you look at the world markets today, you say, "What is going on? What are the choke points that um, are being utilized?" And what, are, what is the second order effect to that? So if we look at, you just take social media. Right? So there's been extraordinary censorship in social media, right? Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Google, all this sort of stuff. They're censoring, censoring information in that. So um, they're controlling those choke points because you're on these networks. Now, in the financial world, we have the euro dollar um, financing because euro dollars is, is your offshore um, dollars offshore and um, and how they're priced in um, in the market there. So there's that system. Petrodollars, just the utilization of the dollar in international trade. Those are all almost like networks where if you're allowed to participate in them, there's a there's a reason to do so. There's a fluidity in markets. There's liquidity. There's ease of transaction. There's a certain stability in terms of rule of law. All these sorts of things which we've had since Bretton Woods. And they're all coming apart at the seams now. But that network is one which we need to operate on. While that's been built, you have other networks that are built, which now are looking better as a, you know, on a relative basis. <clears throat> now, 10 years ago, you couldn't as easily have had a um, RIMNIMBY trade on commodities, insufficient liquidity. Um, insufficient, um, probably rule of law, on a relative basis, now you can. It's more viable. So as the one is, is 
faltering and falling apart, other ones come up. And, and in that space, you've got things like Bitcoin, which is a network which doesn't require these um, centralized controls. And more and more people have been utilizing that. <clears throat> so we've seen that in terms of the growth of that. So you have all these, these kind of networks, if you will. Um, and, and so those are choke points where, where you, like the internet is a massive, it's been a massive distribution channel for everyone. It's pretty much open. And they, the, you know, so that creates wealth, creates freedom of movement, freedom of action, freedom of speech, freedom of intellectual um, uh, you know, discourse. And if you start constricting that, um, then markets will look for alternatives. So you get these. So, so what we look at is a lot of these choke points. Where are the choke points in the world? And obviously, we identified a whole bunch of them in commodity markets. Um, they're in the finance space too, um, in banking, um, even in. I mean, obviously, in social media and communications. Um, that's one of the toughest ones because the. The alternatives to that are still relatively small. I mean, there's things like Telegram that are being utilized. Yep. Signal, um, you know, a lot of those. So, and those have seen enormous growth, enormous growth um, on a comparative scale. So now we haven't invested in any of those. Um, but if you could have, that would have been like you would have seen where where there's a, cons- con- you know, a constriction in in something. So, for example, social media, you go, what are the alternatives? And you bet on those alternatives because there's, a, there's an asymmetry that exists there. So um, as a mental concept, um, I think it's important to think about choke points in society. What are the choke points to your life? What are the choke points to your access? <clears throat> your bank, you know, what we realized when, when Russia's central bank was covered from their reserves, we realized that your money's not your money. It's a token yep. on somebody else's network, right? And, and you're allowed to play on that network provided you play by their rules until you're not allowed on their network anymore. And then your token is worthless, okay? So taking Russia's central bank reserves is going to go down in history as the dumbest move ever because what it's done and it would absolutely accelerate is the end of the petrodollar system. Because what they did, aside from doing that to Russia, what they did is they, they sent out a warning signal every single country around the world that if you don't abide by ours, we will do the same to you. Think about it like this. Let's say we were South Africa. And you're sitting there and you're looking at this. And you realize they just did this to one of the world's biggest military superpowers and a nuclear power. And the country that on aggregate has the largest energy production and export mm-hmm. and one of the largest agricultural producers in the world, like a big fucking deal, in other words. If they could do it to them, why couldn't they do it to us as South Africa? Of course they could. So what do you do? Do you now keep saving in treasury bills? Really? Or do you diversify just a wee little bit? So, so you start now looking for alternatives. See, that's the choke point. The choke point was that. And they've just now put up a flag and said, you know what? This is what it is. It's a last grab effort. It's, 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 it's the flailing of the dying fucking state. You know, it's in its death throes. And so they're flailing around trying to 
you know, pull it all together. And in doing so, they're wrecking it. And so this is a very exciting time for investors because we have massive change taking place in very short timeframes. Um, and there's an asymmetry because if you get it wrong, you literally get wiped out. Um, that's just the risk that we have. And, and there is no way to mitigate that. You know, the world that we've sort of previously existed in, where you could say, oh, I'm going to keep it safe. I'm going to put a bit of this money here and I put a bit there. And, you know, I might not knock it out of the park, but I'll be okay. It's like that world's gone. Gone. We, we're going to have so much change, and we already have, that threatens what we have. And I'm not saying we're going to get it right, but by God, you've got to pay attention. Um, so um, that's kind of the situation that we're in now. And um, there's, I don't know if you saw, what's his name? The um, Zoltan Pozar from uh, Credit Suisse. He, he wrote an article just, uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago which is actually quite excellent. People could look it up. And um, he talked about the end of the Bretton Woods system, right? Yep. And he, he came up with a concept of inside money and outside money. And I thought it was brilliant. It, it highlighted all the things I've been thinking about. He just, I didn't put a name on it. And inside money is basically the money that, that has existed um, Post Bretton Woods and, and that system that's been built up. It's things like treasury bills, government bonds, all these liabilities, yep. um, trade credits, even cash in the bank. That's kind of your inside money. And again, to the Russian thing, they just took that away. So the value of that is now definitely in question. And then you've got like outside money. And outside money is actually old money. It's gold. It's silver. It's commodities. It's lead. It's zinc. It's copper. Um, it's Bitcoin. And so that outside money is competing with the inside money. And the outside money, because of physics, will win. And so the countries that embrace outside money will ultimately win. And the countries that try and, and hold on to inside money, which is coercive, will lose. That's the big trend. If there's nothing else that you take away from this, over the de next decade, that is going to be the process that we move through. <clears throat> you don't need to pick which currency it is, whether it's the renminbi, the ruble, the fucking rupee. Don't even pay attention to that. Just look at the ultimate, what underpins a currency. In most in, in the US, it's a treasury bill. Yep. And you say, what under, underpins a treasury bill? Because it's no longer gold since 1971. It's a US taxpayer. And so then you look at the tax receipts and you look at the debts and you go, well, that's not an underpinning, that's garbage. Oh, wow, that doesn't make any sense. That, that's going to fall over. But there's your underpinning. And you can take <sighs> Russia. Russia's a good example. Aside from the war, which is um, obviously um, poor or, or very bad for liquidity, underpinning their economy is agriculture, energy, um, and, and various production. Those, those are two main things um, in a world where we are short of all of them. And so um, while you're not going to hear it in the mainstream media, purely on a financial basis, if you look at the construct of history, they will win. Now, they could have something else go on. Maybe they get nuked. 
and that, that changes the game plan entirely. But if you just look at the underpinnings of their economy, um, they will win. Um, and currently it's priced as if it's all bankrupt, it's all finished. So there's an extraordinary asymmetry there. Um, I'm just using them as an example. But, yeah. No, you brought it all together really nicely there. We, we kind of started in, the, in our initial conversation talking about the disconnect between the physical world and this false reality and brought it nice home uh, just with that inside and outside money. So I'll obviously put links uh, in the show note b- uh, below for all of our listeners and our viewers to that article too. Um, because essentially, yeah, it's you have the, the physical world, which is <laughs> the outside money, and then this false reality, which hasn't been tied to anything um, and been based on a lie, <laughs> essentially, um, since 1971. So it's, uh, it, it brought it all nicely together. So, Chris, where, um, uh, one question for you. I always ask um, folks this for the first time on the show. A great, great, uh, great final question for you is, um, you know, we talk a lot about investments, we talk about money, we talk about cash flow and so forth, but it's also about leaving a legacy and transferring not only the capital, but also the knowledge, experience and skills. So we talk a lot about principles and values. So if you were only to pass on three principles and values to the next generation uh, to generate wealth and create happiness and success, what would they be? Oh, boy. Um... It's a really great question. You know, I've got teenage kids. And given the shit show that we're in now, it's obviously of great concern. And I know it would be of great concern to, to listeners and viewers. You know, what? it's not just what does your world look like. What does your world look like for, you, for your, your spawn? <laughs> um, and we touched on education. Right. We were talk, you were talking about, uh, I think it was before we recorded Princeton and some of these universities and this, you know, there's this disconnect between the physical world and the real world. And, and the greater that disconnect, the more problems that you're going to have. And, and the two have to come together in some sort of um, symbiotic relationship. And where they don't, you just have a conflict and then you have ideological conflict. And we're in an ideological conflict at the moment. And so... I think universities is dangerous, to be honest, um, at least Western universities, unless you were pursuing, um, I think, you know, engineering or something like that. And even that has been, um, you know, infiltrated, if you will, with, with all sorts of woke neo-Marxist ideology. But what is it that, that you can do? I think, it's, I think it comes down to skills. Um, you know, developing your skills because you can have these catastrophic events and you would know from growing up in Africa and you think north of, north of the border, north of South Africa, you'd have periods of time, like some things, things would happen where people's wealth was just decimated, like wiped out, gone. So if that happened to you, you go, how, what do you do in that sort of environment? What is it that you have to offer? And so I think it comes back to skills. And I, I spent some time um, reading up it was last year, I think it was, it was kind of troubling me. And so <laughs> I was reading up on, on these sorts of topics of, of, you know, what makes people successful. And you'll find even in like um, prison camps, in, um, in prisons themselves, there's always a portion of people who are within that context, within that 
that environment are successful. Like in the prison, there's some guy who lands up being the dude. <laughs> you know, like aside from sheer violence, which can obviously play a big part in it, what are the attributes? What are the skill sets that allow for that participant to, to, to excel within any given environment? Now, that's the worst type of, type of environment. Obviously, you can have better ones, but what is that? And I think it's skills, resources, um, which is closely tied to the two. And the other one's insight. And I think that's probably the most important one is insight. Because, you know, I've met, and you would have too, many people with fantastic skills, and they just don't manage to pull it all together to create something now of, of more extraordinary value. What is the, what is the other mechanism? where you can take skills and utilize them at a greater scale. And I think it's insight. I think it's, it's, it's the ability to, to think um, and to analyze and then put in place those skills um, where you have more leverage or more, shall we say, asymmetry, which is what we, we spend a lot of time trying to understand. <clears throat> so... What's that mean? I mean, we should try and teach our kids skills and insight. Yeah. No, in fantastic. fantastic. Where can folks uh, follow you, stay in, in touch, and, and sign up for uh, your newsletter where you share insights and ideas like this? Um, sure. um, so the website is capitalistexploits.at, um, and you can sign up there. And then um, the other one, which is just for um, qualified investors is glenorkycapital.net. Um, yeah, that's it. And then um, Twitter, uh, sometimes get on Twitter, what's that? Capitalist EXP, at Capitalist EXP. Um, you can find me there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insights and, and knowledge and, and journey with all of my listeners and my viewers. This has been a blast. No, thank you very much for having me. It's been fantastic. Thanks so much. Thank you for so much for spending your most valuable resource, your time, once again with me on the show. Everything Cashflow Ninja is at cashflowninja.com. Over 850 episodes, tools, resources, programs. My book is available there too. The 21 best cashflow niches um, at cashflowninja.com or on amazon.com. And when you grab a copy, please screenshot a proof of your purchase. Send it to my team at info at cashflowninja.com. And you'll get access to a digital version, audio version, a curated library of ninjas discussing the niches uh, and more bonus goodies. Until next time, live infinitely. presentation is for educational and informational purposes only. The information being presented and considered does not consider your particular financial objectives or situation, and it does not make personalized recommendations. This material is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified tax and legal advisor or other qualified professionals, and you should not use the information in place of a customized consultation with a licensed professional regarding your specific personal financial objectives. Such
situation and needs. We believe the information provided is reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, timeliness, or completeness.